G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show, episode number 45. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I am talking to Nathan Parnham. So if you'd like to know more about the sporting parent, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people, and more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So, how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the episode prelude for Nathan Parnham. Now, I am about to announce that we have got show sponsors and we're going to start introducing show sponsors to each one of our shows from here on in, or hopefully every episode from here on in. And today's episode is brought to you by The Sporting Parent. That is the book written by today's guest, episode number 45, Nathan Parnham. The book is called The Sporting Parent and you can get your copy by going to nathanparnham.com forward slash book, and that will be linked up in the show notes. Now, I came across Nathan Parnham through interviewing a previous guest in Nathan Kiley, who was episode number 39. At the end, in communicating with Nathan Kiley, he said, you've got to get Nathan Parnham on. So I started following him on Instagram and absolutely loved what he was sharing. It turns out that he'd actually just written a book during COVID, used his lockdown in Sydney to write this book. It took him about six months to write. And the book was called The Sport or is called The Sporting Parent. It is right up my alley. As a single father of four, I am absolutely really interested in child development. And as a PE teacher, in particular, physical development. And in my time at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport, part of my interview in going for one of the jobs that I went there, I had to talk about how I would develop someone from the age of two through to the age of 18. And so through all that physical competency development, we ended up running a project, a research project and a program called Move More, Learn More. I got absolutely right into physical development and physical competency, particularly for young kids. So as soon as I started looking at this, the Sporting Parent book, I was absolutely fascinated and couldn't wait to speak to Nathan Parnham. Now, if you are a parent, a coach, or a teacher, this episode is absolutely for you and you are going to absolutely love this. Nathan Parnham is a Director of Strength and Conditioning at Brisbane Grammar School and has worked across four schools in a strength and conditioning role, as well as having worked in the NRL with the Parramatta Eels and across different genders, having worked with the Australian Women's Sevens. So he is now a full-time dad and also a full-time strength and conditioning coach or director at Brisbane Grammar and published author. I highly encourage you to get this book. It is really, really interesting. But without any further ado, let's hear from Nathan Parnham. Hi, Nathan, and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. G'day, uh, Jacob. Pleasure to meet you, and thanks very much for inviting me on. Yeah, well, thank you very much for being here. What have we interrupted on this fine day? What have we interrupted? Um, at the moment, we've just dropped my uh, son off to daycare. So it's actually, you got me at a good time. We've just finished the workout, feeling the endorphins and, and ready to go. So <laughs> not interrupting much at the moment. It's week two of school holidays here. So <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's good just running errands and yeah, doing my thing. We just had a conversation off air about our kids. Uh, how old is your son? Uh, Axel is, I think, I'm pretty, yeah, he's 18 months now. So... 
it's it's been an interesting journey in um yeah throughout the whole environment at the moment a moment through obviously with COVID and then uh, my partner is from Barcelona so she doesn't have any family and then it just to make matters worse we are relocated in the process when he was six months old and yeah so we're, we've we've done a fair bit in that short time and, and enjoying the ride for all the uh yeah turns it takes so gee whiz that sounds very busy at this time of you know 2021 with everything that's going on in the world yeah, and we just bought a house actually, so that's 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 kind of the I suppose the settling moment of um, yeah, just that we're we're finally kind of yeah we're settled where we are and we're happy to be here, so it's cool. Oh, that's good to know. So one of the first things I like to ask my guest is, how do you mind your body? How do you look after yourself? Yeah, so for me personally, I just think it's about consistency. So I'm, I turned 40 this year and, and I definitely found in the last couple of years that uh, training is the way that I was training when I was a lot younger. It's just not sustainable when, when you get older. You have to be, uh, when I say strategic, you just have to be consistent. So, and, and I've learned that like no other now. And you know yourself being, being a dad in that uh, when you, the biggest thing I just naively went into being a father was just that uh, I used to hear my friends say, I don't have time. I don't have time. And I used to think, come on, like, where's your priorities lie? Like you've got to look after yourself and all these sort of things. And, and I honestly found myself in a bit of a rut in, in that I wasn't seizing these, I call them windows of opportunity because once those windows of opportunity close, then it is about Axel and, you know, being the dad and, and being at home with and supporting my partner as well. So uh, for me, I, I train regularly. So I train at least four to five times a week. And that involves everything from resistance training to, you know, going for a run through to doing um, my background is combat sports. So doing Muay Thai and, and doing that. So if I can do that consistently, I'm not following any programs or anything like that because I've just learned over time that it's better to get the, the small wins along the way. Whereas if I set myself up with the ultimate program and things like that, and it doesn't get done, then, then mentally I just don't feel that I'm the best person that I can be because I feel disappointed that I've let myself down. And yeah, so now I'm just about consistency and, and just doing a variety of different things. I like that consistency. That's probably the most, one of the most important things that you could do in life yeah big time and and i think that the whole just consistency from day to day and just having you know routine and things like that is it's probably been my biggest challenge if i'm honest in in being a dad is that routine isn't really routine because so many there's so many things that come into play with it but at the end of the day as long as you are consistent then you're constantly getting the little wins and, and for me that's what it's about not only to to make sure that I'm, I'm healthy, but healthy from a, a mind, body, and without being too cliche, a, a spirit side of things too. So, Yeah, so you've just become a father in the last 18 months and you're, of course, famous for a book that you wrote called The Sporting Parent. Let's go right back because I'd love to know the story of Nathan Parnham. How did you end up where you are in life right now? What was life like growing up? Uh, life was competitive growing up. Uh, I was one of four and I'm the second eldest. And my older brother, who's only two years apart from me, we were constantly, yeah, we were constantly at war, with, you know, rumbling with each other through to playing different sports and, and just trying to, you know, essentially be, be kids and find our way. We, we, my brother, as an example, played a lot of golf when he was a teenager. I played a lot of tennis growing up, but 
we also we also skateboarded a lot too. So throughout our teenage years, we we're really close because we, you know, skated all the time and, and things like that. So he was, you know, sneaking me into nightclubs and things like that when I was a young fella. And, and they're probably looking at me thinking, what's going on here? But but, but it's a cool upbringing. And it was a long time ago. And um, but yeah, so and for me, my parents just, you know, they they gave us everything that we could from a sporting experience and opportunity. So, and that, that was across the board through, through all my siblings. So. So one of four, and you just mentioned one of your brothers, how many, any sisters in there? Yeah. So I've got a younger brother who's five years below me and a younger sister as well. So um, yeah. So <laughs> the, the ultimate package. <laughs> well, I okay, my got, sister would say that. But <laughs> I've got so many questions because, as we just spoke about off air, I've got four kids, and uh, they're actually three boys and then a girl. So, um, my their mother and I had four kids in five years, and uh, so we at the moment they're ten, nine, eight, and our daughter is six. Um, what what was it like growing up in the middle of? two brothers and and i'm particularly probably interested in your sister and what it was like for her with three older brothers yeah it's funny because this is going to sound really naive but it's only been since i've become a father myself that i've really appreciated the time and effort that my parents went to so my parents both of them uh they you know they ran small businesses so they're in lighting and uh you know at the, at the height of it all, you know, my mum had four light shops or something like that. And my dad was making and importing lights. And, and throughout all of this, um, they were what, what to me seemed the norm that they were running me, you know, all around the state and things like that for various tennis tournaments when I was a kid. And, uh, and what comes of that is just a kid being a kid. I, I naively just thought it was all about me and, and I didn't see what my brothers or sisters were doing. And, I suppose what you could say about my younger brother and my younger sister is that they had a lot more of a relaxed upbringing that they'll provide an opportunity to play sport and things like that. Uh, but a lot of the time they, they, you know, and hat off to them, they were probably the ones that were sitting in the car sleeping half the time while my parents were running me around to a tennis tournament and, and things like that. So it was, yeah. And like I said, it was definitely competitive with my older brother and I, because being the younger brother, you want to kind of, you know, compare yourself to your older brother and things like that. And, but there was a bigger age gap at like my younger brother's five years and my sister's eight years below me. So uh, we'd kind of grown up and moved on while they were getting into their teenage years. So. So is that competitiveness with your brother two years older, the reason why you got into the combat sports? He got into it first actually. <laughs> so he, uh, he competed and, and fought professionally and, and for me, I just loved um, combat sport. I wasn't a, um, not a, in saying that I am a competitive person, but I wouldn't, the fight game's different. <laughs> uh, you hear the cliche of saying I'm a lover, not a fighter. And, and that's me. <laughs> it, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not that, that way inclined and, and I don't pretend to be. So, um, but there was, there were things along the way that, you know, this, this is, a long time ago now and still he's heavily involved in it. He runs his own Muay Thai gym in a couple of gyms in Sydney. He owns them and, and has, you know, a, a good stable of fighters as well. And that comes through his experience, but my experience went down the other side of it. So the competitiveness between us led me to, I suppose, becoming a little bit more curious as to how the body works. So when he was fighting professionally, uh, he and I were training alongside each other and, 
you know, sparring and all the rest of it. And, and then I was the one who was actually behind the scenes looking at it going, okay, so if we do this and this type of training, then uh, you're talking a good 20 years ago now. And, uh, but that's, that's kind of where it was at. And that's how, what led me to essentially fueled my passion to get into this. So. And so whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, we grew up in Sydney. So I'm living in Brisbane now and, and we grew up in Sydney around the uh, inner west and southwest Sydney during the early days. Yeah. Okay. So you just mentioned um, to get into this now, what is it that you're into now? Yes, I suppose uh, just athletic performance. So for me, I was really fortunate in that my parents didn't force us in any way to continue our education. We went to uh, private schools in Sydney and, and that was probably more, you know, I put my hand up and say that it, it certainly wasn't for academics or anything of the sort, but it was probably more for the discipline side of it. My parents knew that we were a little bit off the rails and it was probably easier for a school to uh, support their discipline <laughs> than it was for them trying to do it all themselves so that's that's why we went there we uh and and at the end of the day it, it was really cool because it just allowed me to get a really good strong friendship circle a lot of the guys I'm still mates with today and but the, the, a lot of the difference in that environment was a lot of other parents were quite forceful on their expectations of their their kids in that when, as soon as they finished school they had to go to university and for me, that was never the case. I was the first one to go to university in my, in my family. Uh, and it took me a year. I took a couple of years off after school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then it was only in that I started training in Muay Thai and, and understood how the human body worked that I wanted to continue to do that. And it just fueled my passion. So I think I'm going into my 18th year now as an athletic development coach or athletic performance coach and, and loving every step of it along the way. So what was it like growing up in the 80s in Western Sydney? <laughs> uh, Is that why you got into combat sports? <laughs> no, nah, we were... <laughs> we, so, yeah, you're, I'm, I'm kind of only laughing because I'm feeling really old when you said growing up in the 80s. <laughs> I was like, you're right, it was the 80s. Um, it, was, it was definitely different to what it is now. And, um, yeah, it, oh, we, we had a cool upbringing let's just say. And, um, and then as we continued to move along and, and we relocated suburbs, we, we didn't have anything growing up as far as uh, we weren't well, a well-off family. We were very fortunate that my parents uh, were quite intrinsically driven and they acquired success and, and my family being my siblings and I were beneficiaries of that. So uh, when we that's why when we went to when we were in teenagers or sorry when we were teenagers that's what how we ended up going to private schools and things like that um because at the end of the day it was it was my parents drive and motivation in in, in the success of their business that allowed that to happen so um it was i saw a lot of interesting things and and uh like i said very different to now and i don't know if you get away with a lot of the things now <laughs> um but it's it was cool and and i wouldn't change it for the world so so I always struggle with saying Muay Thai. Muay Thai. Yeah, Muay Thai, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So obviously that's very big and popular in Thailand. Did, did the sport ever take you to Thailand or somewhere, a country like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, several times. So uh, when I was 17 was when I started training. And then uh, at the time in New South Wales, uh, Muay Thai was illegal. And, and when I say illegal, 
there was no underground fight rings or anything like that. It was more that there were certain rules that you couldn't do. So in, in New South Wales, it had to be kickboxing. So it was just punching and kicking only. And But in order to get the fights, then we, we had to travel interstate. So my um, brother would travel to Queensland, Melbourne, Adelaide, things like that, where uh, in those states, you're actually allowed to fight with knees uh, and elbows as well. And, and that's where, so it kind of got to the stage where it was because it was such a, a long time and quite a bureaucratical thing through combat sport in New South Wales. In the end, my brother ended up just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go live in Thailand because then that way I don't have to fly interstate every time I want to have a bout, then the bouts are every weekend if you want. So um, yeah, I've been there, I think three times, but the first time I went there was when I was 18. And then the next time was 19 or 20. And then the Next time after that, I was mid-20s, so, yeah. So we're talking mid-20s there with your Muay Thai um, career, and you're now just turned 40 and, you know, presuming that at 38 you've had your son. What? Tell me about the journey in between that, the mid-20s through to about or to the late 30s. Yeah, it was, it was um, I was all about work. So for me, I was relentless, like I... Uh, like a lot of other coaches are at the end of the day, if you, you've played competitive sport and things like that and, and you, you know, that, that ends up being your passion. And, and I think that can be to our own detriment, if I'm honest, because I feel like if you're that competitive in nature and that's all you know, then that competitiveness, if, if competitive sport is taken away, and what ends up happening is that ends up fueling your motivation and things like that and your drive to succeed as a coach. And for me, I always wanted to work in professional sport. And it was one of those things that I was, uh, I think it was like 2002. So I was at university. And I think when I first started as a PT, it was about 2002 and, and also interning as well. So it was... Um, throughout that entire time they were it was wasn't out of the ordinary to be working 12 hour days and things like that and and that was because I thought that that was what it took to in order to get a gig in professional sport so I was a late bloomer in getting a job in professional sport in that it only ended up happening about five years ago to me Uh, and throughout all that time then it's a long road and and a lot of my mates who you know work in other careers whether it be that they were you know tradesmen through to finance and things like that they would always look at as coaching and say like, why do you bother doing that? Like, you know, I wouldn't get out of bed for that sort of money and things like that. But I think that if you, if you're genuinely passionate about what you do and, and that fuels you every day and that that's a fulfilling uh, career, if you want to call it, then it, uh, for me, it's a no brainer. There's plenty of people who, who wake up every day hating what they do and they might earn a lot of money doing it. They might spend a lot of time doing it. But to me, that's not really the true definition of success in, in life anyway. So so what sort of places were you interning at and where were you working between that 2002 to approximately 2016-ish? Yeah, so I, I was working as a personal trainer part-time throughout university and then just in a private fitness studio. And throughout that, I was also uh, volunteering my time. So I, I worked out of a, a private tennis academy uh, which led on to uh, contracting for Tennis Australia, Tennis New South Wales. And, and these were, you know, all dribs and drabs as far as, you know, a couple of hours here, a couple of hours there. And then it led me to 2000 and, oh, sorry, then I, I ended up um, 
throughout that whole PT journey, I ended up managing a, a corporate health facility. So I became a gym manager and that was at Woolworths in the head office of Woolworths in Sydney. And while I was managing, I was still on the side uh, looking after a private tennis academy as well, knowing that eventually it would lead to me as a full-time job. So uh, that opportunity came at Westfield Sports High and I think it was 2009. And that was my first full-time job uh, as a strength and conditioning coach. And it came at a risk. So I, the guy had gone away and, and he had a secure position and, and he'd gone with a, a Greek football team. And they said, you know, would you like a three-month trial to see if he's going to accept the job over there? And then and you could potentially be here. And for me, I, I was managing a gym at the time and, and I've got no problem in saying it at the time. I, I think I was on probably about $75,000 salary a year. And, and the opportunity came up for me where I was ended up being on, well, I think it was, I wouldn't have even been on 50 grand. And so I had three months window of opportunity of could this be the you know my full, first full-time gig and walk away from that sort of money that pay and I kind of yeah I backed myself to do it so I thought you know you, you can't die wondering so I did it and then uh, I was fortunate enough the guy didn't didn't return and, and I got my first full-time gig out of it living off my savings for 18 months <laughs> and is that where you still are now are you still at that same school no, no. So um, I, I've been to a few schools since then, been really fortunate. So I, I was there for three and a half years. And throughout that time, you know, the program continued to evolve. And I was fortunate enough to work with, I think it ended up being about 14 sports that they had on offer there. And then I ended up getting a job at another school, a private school in Sydney called Newington College. And from Newington College, I was there for five and a half years. And then uh, throughout all of this time, I was still, even though I was full-time uh, as a, you know, an athletic development coach, I was still working on the side. So I was still looking after, I looked after uh, the North Sydney Bears, which is the New South Wales Cup, which is say there is, if you want to call it reserve grade, the reserve grade. So I looked after them for six seasons and then eventually uh, I found my way to Parramatta and, and that led me into the NRL. And from there, that kind of where it, it kicked off in, in the last few years. So tell me more about that. So you ended up at the Parramatta Eels. Where, where to from there and what was that like? Yeah, so it, it was great because so I was working at Newington and, and I had the opportunity to work for the under 20 side in Parramatta Eels. A friend of mine was a coach and he said, look, um, at this stage, I, I'd had a few things go on behind the scenes that I was kind of trying to deal with. And, and in that space, I, he, uh, he said, I know, you, you know you're probably not interested in it, but will you come and do it for a year? And I said, you're right. I, like, to be honest, I'm not that interested in it, but I will do it for a year because I love working with you. So I did it for a year. And then, and then ironically, we had one of the most successful seasons in that we we fell short uh, in the grand final and in the last, like literally a try on the buzzer. Um, so, but then, and then ironically uh, that led me to my, my first NRL gig and we got the wooden spoon the year after. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a really good learning experience. And then, and then that was, but that's really cool. Right. Because for me, I love the, like, there's no better. Everyone can backslap each other while they're winning, but when you're coming last, 
that's when true character shines and also what you some of your biggest learning learning things come from that and then eventually it, it, i ended up finding my way uh through with the aussie women sevens in with rugby australia for a few seasons there so uh it's been cool and so now i'm obviously back in the schooling space too so what was that like with the women's sevens because they're quite successful aren't they yeah so it, it, my first, as I mentioned earlier on, I had worked and consulted in a variety of different sports. I've, I've always coached girls. And the beauty of it is, is that um, I genuinely do love coaching girls because they are different in the way that their mindsets work. And I've got no qualm in saying that because I have experienced elite sport at both ends of it. And for me, coming from a very male-dominant, testosterone-driven professional NRL team, going to uh, they had come off the back of winning gold at, at Rio in the Olympics and, and they really put the whole women's sport on the map and, and I've got nothing but admiration for a lot of those girls in that team and, and for me that day one the thing that stood out to me was how grateful they were for my contribution and the other staff and team members contribution because a lot of the time that goes just assumed and unaccounted for in, in if you want to call it normal professional sport, I'll call it traditional professional sport uh, because a lot of guys don't care for that because they've done it for so long that that's just expected where the girls were, were, were extremely thankful. And I remember my first session that one of the athletes I was working with was, was very appreciative and said, oh, thanks so much for coming out. I really appreciate you guys coming out on the field. And I was like, that's cool. Like, that's what I'm here for. And, but, but it, it did take me back because I thought, wow, okay, this is, this is cool now because now I'm working with people who are appreciative for, for what, yeah, what, what they're getting day in, day out. So, Yeah, I think that's what I take from working with women too. And I actually think I much prefer to work with women than with males for that yeah. reason. In that, So I was working with a couple of football clubs, Aussie Rules football clubs locally here in Darwin. So uh, two years I had with a club called Palmerston and two years with Wanderers. And in that time, I was asked to come and do some stuff. I'd always done a little bit of stuff with girls, but um, the women's footy, um, Aussie Rules footy had started to become a big thing around 2016. I think the first A4W season started. And uh, around that time, it was sort of growing. And I was asked by this White Wanderers um, to specifically have two nights a week with the girls. So I had two nights a week with the boys and two nights a week with the girls. Previously in the two years before that, I had done some stuff at Palmerston with the girls, but it was just here and there and, it was um, a bit more informal. And what I found working with the girls was that they were so much more appreciative, particularly for a strength and conditioning coach to come out. They saw that as an opportunity, whereas the guys, you know, with the typical history of, um, of sport, you know, particularly in the 70s and 80s, fitness was something that you just had to do that everyone dreaded and was like, oh, drag your feet doing it. Whereas the girls were like, bring it on. You know, this is amazing. There's someone coming out and actually giving us this stuff. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and it's yeah, totally from that. And then and and on top of that too, the whole their their mentality and inquisitive nature is it's it's far more um, by them being quite inquisitive and, and and trying to seek the rationale and learning for things. I found it a really reciprocal relationship in that they would be asking questions of how you know why are we doing this and and how am I going to get better from it? And it ended up being a a really a quality coaching relationship because 
you've got that um, rationale in that they genuinely do want to get better and okay, cool. So this is how we're going to do it. And this is why we're doing it. And, and it was really good where a lot of guys end up being the other way in going, well, basically just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Or they'll be trying because a lot of, at the end of the day, athletes are, they're either got good gene pool to get there. They've got incredible skills as well and eye for the game. And, and a lot of them do have that mindset of going, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm only in here because I've got to do it. But at the end of the day, I, I love playing footy. So I'm here to play footy. I'm not here to be an Olympic weightlifter. So um, I'll do what you tell me to do. But at the end of the day, this is what I'm here for. And, and you, you also get those, those one or two who are genuinely interested to learn and find out how they can get better. But it's very different in that they, it's more about what you can do for them that suits their mindset of how they can be successful in their particular sport as opposed to the girls seeing you as a guide and, and a coach for how they can get better. And, and that, I know that is a really big generalisation, but at the same time, it's, it's a larger, uh, there's a lot more... Uh, members of a team that would be inclined to think that way from a girl's perspective. How much emphasis do you put on that questioning and being inquisitive and essentially becoming a student of the sport? Because it's one of the first things that I talk about when I go and deliver a session. And it's that, you know, you should be asking so many questions that your coach is getting annoyed with you. Just keep asking why, 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 why are we doing this? And if you can't, if your coach can't explain why you're doing X, Y, Z, you know, this drill or whatever, then I always say you best get yourself a, a new coach because they should be able to justify why you're doing every little thing that you're doing. But how much emphasis do you put on getting them to become a student of what it is that they're doing? Yeah, a, a lot of it because the for me, and I suppose I don't know if this comes inherently from being a t- having a teaching background as well, in that I believe that you should be an educator and a facilitator in the coaching space. So even when we go through different coaching blocks or mesocycles, then I would um, preempt that and and say to the athletes that I've worked with, you know, that whether it be a presentation or whatnot, and say, you know, this is the training block that's coming up. This is what we're going to be doing in this training block. This is how you're going to understand and feel the differences. And this is why we're doing it. And I think that a lot of that comes into the, the feel of them in understanding and getting far greater buy-in. And I think as athletic development coaches and performance coaches, we, we're become, we become so obsessed with what we're doing that we, we're so preoccupied with our programming that we get it. And it's like, oh, great, it's done. And then, but the problem with it is, is you need to actually sell that to the people that you're rolling it out to. And if you can't do that, then it doesn't matter how good your program is on paper or on the, you know, online or whatnot, it doesn't stand for anything because the athletes haven't bought into it. So for me, it plays a massive role in, in how you sell it. And the other side to that too, which I've explored in the last few years is other ways of how I can essentially subconsciously sell that. So whether that be, um, you know, social media is a great way for this because I love the fact that a lot of athletes and younger athletes coming through are all on it. And if I, there's a particular training methodology that we're trying to employ in that upcoming space and I'll be sharing things on it and then they will inherently see that in, whether it be on stories on Instagram or comments and posts and things like that. And then prior to rolling into that training block, it's like, okay, this is why we're doing it. I know why we're doing it. And, and that's, one of the key reasons why I actually got into social media. So to, to talk to me more about social media, I'm really interested in this in specifically how you use it and, and what, yeah, yeah essentially how you're using it. 
Okay. So the a long time ago when I was trying to, as I highlighted before, trying to get into the professional space, one of the one of the teachers at the school that I was at, who was in charge of um, the like the ICT learning space, he said, "Do you have Twitter?" And I was like, "No." Like, who am I to why? Why am I going to have a Twitter account? And he said, "He said you're making a massive mistake if you don't." And I was like, "Okay, well, why is this?" And then he started to explain it to me. He said, "The more as technology evolves, he said there's going to be a digital footprint created about you, whether or not you like it or not." He said, so you're mad to not engage with it because then you can actually shape the digital footprint that you're trying to aspire to be. And at that time, it was essentially professional sport. So so I got onto Twitter and uh, I'm I'm not on it very often, but I still am on it. Um, But then all these other things came out like Instagram and Facebook was happening, but then there's Facebook pages and all these things. But throughout this, this period of time, I met so many cool people who would reach out because something resonated with them. And I was like, Oh, this is actually cool. And then, so before you know it, you kind of feel like, you know, these people around the world and then you're sharing all these ideas, they're sharing content with you and, and you're sharing all these things. So the amount of relationships that I've built from it has been amazing. And I'm talking around the world, the content of, of information that I'm now able to, reach out and and get is is also and and that's a reciprocal thing too because the only way that's going to happen is if i share stuff with them too so the more likely you're you are to share stuff with people then they'll share it back and then the flip side to that is there's obviously things in place that you're not allowed to do you know yourself as a um an educator working in a school is that we're we're not allowed to directly contact students and things like that but the one thing that I, i did learn along the way and I'd be naive to think that it's not is that a lot of students are following you behind the scenes and, and, and seeing what you're doing. So the way I look at that space is I've mentioned before that it, it is about the type of training and, and methodologies that we're doing and the mindset and whether that be uh, a lot of that can even be just being a better version of you. So if I'm, if I'm putting that stuff out there, then I'd love to think that the students along the way that I've worked with throughout the years are absorbing that. And then on top of that as well comes the whole byproduct of training methodologies that, that you're building along the way. So they, they see it, they, they can't like it because for obvious reasons, and I can't engage with students for obvious reasons, but I know they see it. And because of conversations that get happen, that happen, you know, in the weight room and all these sort of things, and they'll, they'll be, they'll be really inquisitive about, you know, Oh, talk to me about this when I know myself that I've put a post up about this. So um, yeah, so that, that's how I, I strategically use it. So which platforms are you using mainly now? Yeah, at the moment, it's probably Instagram the most, but if I'm honest, I, I'm even now, I feel like, so a lot of youth will, will call Facebook, you know, old people's social media. So a lot of kids <laughs> aren't even on Facebook. Um, and then And then now I feel like that's where Instagram is. So uh, because they have WhatsApp and all these sort of things coming through, then I'm still on Instagram and probably spend most of my amount of time on there. Um, but I even still, I feel like that that's being left behind from a lot of uh, the youth of today too. So uh, because they, they, you know, at the end of the day, we need to be realistic in that, that in many instances, uh, youth as a whole don't like, they don't want their parents seeing what they're doing. They don't want their un- auntie and uncle seeing what they're doing. So naturally they're going to deviate to a platform 
like Snapchat and things like that, where essentially their, their parents and aunties and uncles and things like that aren't on it. So for me, uh, it's a big thing because I feel like the technology side of things is definitely 100% shaping the mind of our youth and changing how they function on a day-to-day basis and how we as coaches can adapt to that in our, in our coaching space. So that, that's something that I'm kind of heavily going into at the moment in, in trying to understand how my coaching philosophy and programming can be in alignment with the whole instant gratification and, and the way that technology and apps are evolving and it's changing the mindset of our youth as well in how they function on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, Facebook and Instagram are definitely my two favourites. Uh, and I do get students say, sir, why aren't you using Snapchat or you need to get into TikTok? I just yeah. don't have any interest in those two platforms. No, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and there's another side to it too. Like, you know, let's, let's use TikTok. Like my nieces and nephews have that. And I kind of look at it and think, if I'm a 40-year-old bloke and I'm dancing around and all that, <laughs> I kind of just go, that's probably where you should be involved in that platform, mate. <laughs> So it, uh, yeah, but either way, whatever, whatever makes it work for you, but, but that's just different strategies of how I use it anyway. The other side to what it too is it, 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 it does break down that, um, I suppose you, you, the element of uh, just relationships with the students, they, they see what you're, what you're into and I love my hip hop and things like that. And it's like, oh, have you heard of this song, sir? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like that song was being played before you were born. So <laughs> it, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, it's cool because it just allows them to, and you to reveal an element of you that they can relate to. And what about Twitter? Are you still on Twitter? Uh, yeah, but I, I, I kind of got turned off. I am on it, but I, but I kind of got turned off it because over the years I've just seen a lot of, uh, if you want to call them heated debates, uh, from academics and things like that. And I'm like, dude, everyone's got their own opinion. I think everyone's just taking this way too serious when there was a 40 character limit or something like that at the time. I don't know if there still is, but yeah, it just got way out of hand with people arguing about silly things. I'm just like, whatever. Everyone's got an opinion. They're entitled to it. You don't have to agree to it, nor do you have to bring it down. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I will have a Twitter account but I don't really use it. I just feel like Twitter's a bit too Americanized. It's very big in the US. I don't think it's really ever made it here in Australia. Yeah, it's and the other side to it too is it's very from my experiences with it, it's it's very heavily academic. Like a lot of a lot of you're not you, people aren't ha- people aren't having fun on Twitter. It's kind of um, they're just all they're doing is basically stealing information or borrowing information from different things and. And there's a lot of people who, who are the other side to social media that I, that I don't particularly like is there's so many people who are on different platforms who don't contribute, don't share anything, but it is very much about them and what they can take from it. And, and that creates problems too, because all it does essentially is uh, people can be openly criticized for things in what they're doing because they're brave enough to throw themselves out there but quite often, a lot of times the criticism comes from people who aren't engaging with it and they're the ones who, who, who aren't throwing themselves out there. And that's the side of social media that I, that I don't like. So, I, I definitely think for me, Instagram is the big one. I, Facebook was always my favourite, but that's very quickly switching to Instagram. And I still speak to people that say, oh, I don't really get Instagram. I just think Instagram is so clean. You know, you've got your 15-second stories, you've got your 30-second reels, you've got your one-minute posts, you've got your 10-minute IGTVs, and then you've got your lives that can go up to an hour. It's just the whole gamut that you could possibly want on social media. And I just find it really 
light, colourful, easy to use. And in terms of reaching out to people like you and people across the world and making those connections and building networks, there's nothing like it, I don't think. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, you've hit it on the head. It, it's really simple, easy to use. And, and the other way that, that I don't, that I, and this is where I think some academics or older coaches don't gel with it is because now the whole, like there's a lot of amazing infographics and things like that that come out on Instagram that like I save them all the time. And, and a lot of that is now uh, the, the whole thing of, learning in the past from you know you need to read the abstract through to the whole article and things like that you see a lot of you know online swipes happen because of this and and i still do that but the reality is it's no different to learning with kids and youth these days is that they don't sit there and read you know when when you and i were at school we the you know the first 10 minutes of the lesson might have been a teacher saying open to page 92 and i want you to read from 92 to page 97 they're not doing that now. It's very much like here's the graphic here. The, here it is, and it's it's and it's changing the whole way that we think and, and the way that we um, engage and learn. So uh, a lot of those visual benefits of Instagram, I think, are cool. But I can also see why older coaches and things like that. Like I'm 40. There's coaches coming through now who, you know, the infographics and stuff that they're creating is amazing, and and I and I love learning that stuff from the younger coaches coming through. But I feel like if you're dismissive of of any platform, then it's kind of like, yeah. So I suppose there's a reason why I, I dabble in several of them, um, but I don't hang my head on, uh, hang my hat on one, but it, but it's amazing to, to see how they can benefit so many different platforms and so many different people and coaches along the way. And last one on social media and technology. What about YouTube? Yeah, I tried YouTube a few years ago, but I just found that, and, and I am going to get back into it because a lot of people, uh, tech, friends of mine who, who are in that space say that there's certain benefits associated with YouTube that other platforms don't allow, um, which, which is fine. The, the challenge for me is, and I still have this challenge now, like even last week, if I'm completely honest, I, I turned all my alerts off because I just got to a stage where it was all noise to me. And, and I'm someone who likes clarity and, and, essentially silence when I think and, and how I can work. And, and for me, you know, there's so many different chat groups through to whatever. And, and in the end, I just, I've, I've turned my alerts off so that I can just essentially um, be a little bit more relaxed. Cause I, I feel like as a person, you just get so uptight with responding to this and you lose sight of your priorities. So um yeah, maybe I'll turn them back on one day, but I don't know. <laughs> so what are your priorities right now? Right now, I think I've got a, a good balance, I feel, as far as my priority is, um, first and foremost, is my family and setting us up from, from a, you know, like I said, I've, we've relocated. So now that we've just bought a house and it's all about settling in and establishing our roots because we, we definitely love being in Brisbane. And, and we can't see ourselves going back. Uh, and so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is building, a, a, you know, a, the best program in Australia in the development high school setting. And, and that takes time. And the beauty of being in a development space is that it does allow you to term upon term, year upon year, build that program to allow it to, to really flourish in the long term. So there's still a few years away from that. And, and in that comes with the whole sporting parent book. 
in that it was released in I think on the 21st of June this year and it's still in its infancy so for me in if I throw those three factors into it it's about how I can can get the ultimate balance to to achieve what I, I think is my true definition of success anyway. I'm really interested to know what led you to write the book and what your goals and visions are for the book. Uh, I have ordered a copy. It unfortunately hasn't arrived before our podcast episode recording, Um, but I'm really looking forward to, hopefully it'll be here really soon. Uh, And um, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Just quickly, side note, where can you get a copy of the book? Yes, I think that the the first place to go is just nathanparnum.com forward slash book because it allows you to choose a different, whether it be Booktopia, Amazon, whatever. So if you go there, the links are there and you can just click on it and choose how, how whatever means necessary to get your copy of it. And yeah, that, that's where they can go to get it. And so then what led you to write it? Yeah, so for me, I felt throughout my entire career that there was still the same questions being asked throughout. So like I said, I think I'm in my 18th year now. And, and as soon as I experienced professional sport and, and professional sport from both genders, then I felt like that cemented my knowledge in understanding what goes on behind the scenes in professional sport as well. So that way I could empower and educate parents that whether it be that they just want their, their son or daughter to be physically active for life, then I've gone down that path. And whether they want their child to be, you know, end up playing professional sport, then there's elements of it that allows them a greater understanding of it. Because at the end of the day, my job, my success and our team's success in where we're working um, is purely based on how effective we can communicate with parents and if we're not effective communicators and transparent communicators, then it doesn't matter as far as the, the your success, your true success in that space is not going to be achieved because at the end of the day, parenting, as you know, is a really emotional uh, experience and there's quite strong emo- emotional ties to particular sports, to particular beliefs. And, and that's cool. And the idea of the book in the sporting parent is that it allows you to digest the information in your own time allows you to see what's relevant in your particular journey throughout your various kids because you've mentioned you've got four they're all very different they're all of you know you said within a five-year period but they're going to face different hurdles along the way and and the biggest thing for me in the sporting parent book is that it allows you to digest the information acknowledge that it's all there and then pick out what you need for your family where uh, i think a, a, a lot of errors in in from parenting in the sporting spaces that they listen to other people's experiences. And these might be tarnished experiences or whatnot in different sports, different academies, through to whatever. Um, but it's got to be something that you can relate to as an individual and as a parent, as a, as a collective too, for that matter. So um, that's why it's, yeah, it's been written. So. So what was the, the journey like writing the book? Because I would love to write a book one day. It's something that's been on my radar for a very long time. And if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. As you know, I, I just yeah. got back from a flying lesson. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm definitely going to do it. So the, the book thing will happen one day. Um, but so I would love to know what was the journey like in, in writing the book and that decision from when you said, okay, I'm going to write this book to actually publishing it. Yeah, so before, throughout the years, I had no intention to write the book last year. It's just I feel like you need to seize opportunities that present themselves. And 
throughout this process, I had met uh, amazing coaches who had written that I still value as friends today and, and that, that have written books and produced books. And, and I'll constantly in just general organic conversation, how did you go about this? And why did you do it this way and whatnot? So that always intrigued me. And then it got to the stage where just how life fell with, you know, throughout COVID and things like that, that I was going to be, I was essentially unemployed indefinitely because I was stood down like a lot of other people in the country. And I thought, well, there's no better window of opportunity to, as I highlighted before, give me a routine, keep me sane and and actually accomplish something truly great that I, that I believed in that was going to make a difference to the parents throughout the country and the world for that matter is that, if I could pen it down in that time, it's the things that happen after. So the, the writing the book is, is the easy part. So as soon as I'd researched how to go about it and things like that, everywhere will tell you a finished book is far better than a procrastinated book or a book that you're going back. And so everyone, everywhere will say, just start writing and finish writing. And then you can go back and edit along the way through various things. Um, but at least that way you've got it down. And I can say that that was the easiest part because I was every day just really passionate about what I was doing. I wanted it all in there. And that was awesome. But then the, the biggest challenge that comes there after that is the designers, the illustrators and, and putting it, all the pieces of the puzzle together. And, and it's funny because it got about six weeks out from launch date. And, and then the amount of head noise that you get from before it launches of, oh, do I really want to do this? Is it good enough? And I was just really, really, um, we've got a, you know, we spoke previously about Nathan Kylie, who's been a guest on your show as well. And, and, and he's uh, one of the testimonials on the back cover as an example. And, and throughout this, I said to him, I was like, oh, he said, man, you just really need to get this out there, out there, stop procrastinating. I'm sure it'll be good enough. Just get it done. And when he said that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, right. Let's go. It's time to go. And, and that was it. So um, that's where we are. So now it's, yeah yeah i'm very lucky to get nathan to give you a testimonial because as i said to you and as whenever what i say to everyone when i talk about nathan is that he's got this phenomenal ability to understand stuff at a phd level but still be able to break it right down to essentially primary school level and everything in between he's so intelligent when it comes to strength and conditioning and such a good teacher in the way he's able to break things down and teach them so if he's saying your book is good, it must be bloody good. Yeah. Um, but how did, how did you meet Nathan, actually? Yeah, so Nathan uh, ended up, he was one of the uh, employees in my team at Newington. So we worked together for a couple of years and, and I was really fortunate in that he was coming through. I, I, don't, I don't know, I think he was still going through his undergrad at the time, I think. I might be wrong. Um, but either way, we struck a good chord because Nath is an extremely fearless person in, in the way he goes about things. And, and there was an element of that, that he, while I was kind of the, I suppose the old head saying to him, no, nah, you can't do this. And you'd never do that. He was the, the younger, the other fearless, younger counterpart saying, well, why not? Why wouldn't you do this? I disagree and all this. And I thought, you know what, I could learn a lot from this guy. And, and we've been mates ever since. And, and through that, I think in, in any, um, space you're in whether it be profession and things like that like i do genuinely call nathan mate and and i think you need mates around you and friends around you like that who can continue to to push your boundaries and 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 kind of get rid of the fluff and say no man like you need to do this and 
because this is why you need to do it. And, and then that way it just it gives you that reassurance. And there's a lot of other great friends that I have and also coaches for that matter who are in the same, same ballpark. So. Nathan Kylie is episode number 39 on the Mind Your Body show. So you can hear all from him and everything that he knows about strength and conditioning right there. Uh, so how long did the journey take to write the book, the actual writing phase? Yeah, so it, it was, you're testing me now, but I think it might have been around that April uh, stage through to I finished writing it essentially in October. So May to October, um, April, May to October. And then, and then it was from October through to essentially June that was the entire, everything was done by February. And then there was the tweaks of the illustrations and things like that, like, you know, the spacing and just the really fiddly stuff. Um, but yeah, from October through to essentially February, that was all the illustrations through to um, the design, the book cover. And, and then the final stage of it was the, uh, the taking the photos for, for the book cover as well. That's something that you, you underestimate again. So the photos were, were being done in, we, we had relocated. So if you look on the front cover, there's the kids in the background. Um, they're actually a colleague of mine at, at work. She, I said to her, look, I, we don't know anyone in Brisbane. Um, I don't know any kids outside of mine and students from the school. And she said, don't worry, um, I'll get you four kids. Would you, my, mine and a couple of others of my friends. I was like, yeah, absolutely. So if you can see in the background, there's four kids in the background and, and yeah, two of them are hers and two of them are uh, from yeah, a good friend of theirs. So, and, and yeah, the photography stuff takes a time again. And that's, that's just some things, the things that you just don't think about and how long they take. So uh, yeah. And then June, it was done. 21st launch. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else, audio, then you'll have to check it out on YouTube to see the book and see what Nathan's talking about. But that seems, Nathan, like a very quick time frame to write within six months and essentially have the whole thing done in 12 months. Yeah, so I was really fortunate in that there was no other way to do it. So what I mean by that is uh, for the listeners out there in Sydney at the time, uh, we hit lockdown in March and then my son was born in April and then there was a good three months or something like that, that essentially you pretty well weren't allowed to leave your house. So for me, it was perfect because I got to spend every waking hour with uh, you know, my son. Like when you talk about paternity leave and things like that, that that's, there's no better paternity leave than right there. And, um, <laughs> and then at the same time, while he was sleeping, I was crunching away, typing along the way. So I think I was fortunate in that a lot of other people who have, and that's when I talk about seizing the moment, that's exactly what it was in that if I, I look back now and, and my partner laughs as well, and, and I've said to her openly that if I was working a full-time job and doing this, this would seem like it was something that, that would never get across the line and, and hat off to the people who do have full-time jobs and things like that and they are doing things because it takes a long time. And, and I was just very fortunate that, I think the biggest um, way that you can determine uh, how adaptable you are is is when you pivot, where you pivot and what you go into when unexpected times uh, arise. And for me, I knew that I wanted to write a book in the long term. It was a, it was a, you know, it, it was a pipe dream, so to speak. But as soon as that came where the whole process unfolded, I was like, when am I going to get this essentially, you know, three to six months of, 
unsure or that lack of certainty of, of employment. So let's go, let's go now and let's get it done. So um, that's what I did. So you were very productive and you made the most of lockdown. Is that, um, I apologize if I'm getting too personal here, but is that when you lost your job during that period? Yeah, so you're not you personal. Have- yeah, yeah, so you're not, not personal at all. It, um, millions of other Australians are in the same position as me, so I'm certainly not crying foul from it in, in any way. It was basically what happened was that the Olympics was postponed and professional sport was you know, essentially ceased nationwide. Um, and then, then that's when uh, at Rugby Australia they had to decide and say, well, hang on a second, we don't even know if the Olympics is going ahead. There's, there's been no surety of that. Um, so what we're going to do is I think there was about 75% of Rugby Australia at the time who got stood down um, in, that, in that space until they figured out, like they lost sponsorships through you know, Qantas and all the rest of it. Um, and, and like I said, I'm certainly not crying foul of this. It was one, it was just a circumstantial thing where it was like, okay, so what we're going to do is you guys are all on JobKeeper and whatnot. Um, and then until we get a definitive answer of when the Olympics are and all these sort of things. So even like full credit to, to the girls and things like that in the team is that they all essentially went home throughout this, this process. And, and there was, there was a few of them still in and around, but they didn't even know. Uh, some of those girls were on the on the brink of retiring, and it's like, well, are we going to get to the Olympics? Can we get? Can we withstand another year of it? And and they got there, and and they got there with with marginal staff, and that's no different to to anyone who's listening who doesn't have any experience in professional sport. You know, the AFL was just played on the weekend, and and there's a lot of staff throughout professional sport who weren't there throughout the, the multiple seasons in, in, in different sports, but throughout the last two seasons, this year and last year, they essentially were working down on watered-down staff. So are you back now with Rugby Australia? No, no. So for, so for me, uh, that happened. And then as soon as that definitive point came of that the Olympics was going to be extended, my goal personally was... Uh, when with my partner and I, we obviously our son, we knew that we were having our son. Um, and we said, as soon as the Olympics is done, that I'm going to go back into the development space because professional sport is, is very difficult and challenging for families. And, and for me, that's, that's not where I wanted to be. And it's not the father that I wanted to be either. Uh, so we had already made that at the agreement that I was going to go back into the development space. And I was extremely fortunate that throughout of this, all of this, a, a job came up at a school in Sydney called St. Augustine's and they, that was amazing. So kind of as soon as the Olympics was uh, knocked on, essentially delayed, then we knew that I wasn't going to go around another year. We knew that the staffing wasn't going to be the same. Um, so I jumped at it straight away and was fortunate enough to get that. And, and I loved working there. It was an amazing school, amazing, um, the, the framework of what they're doing was awesome. And for me as, as a family, the, the opportunity came up to move and relocate into state. So uh, that's what we did. And, and, and for me, it, it, it does sound cliche in saying family first, but it was a, an opportunity for our family to relocate for a better lifestyle. So we did. I was just about to ask on that. You um, predicted what I was going to say. What, what, what made you move from Sydney to Brisbane and buy a house and ultimately settle down quite substantially yeah, so, in Brisbane? Yeah, it, it, it was a bit of a, a leap. Uh, a quick erratic move some people would say but basically the job opportunity came up at Brisbane Grammar School uh, at the end of I think it was maybe I'm going to say November and for me it was 
like a, an amazing opportunity to I've worked in these schools before. This is my fourth school that I'm working in. And, and it was essentially to go back into it and run that, the, the, the role is strength and conditioning director. And we've got an amazing team who are already there as well. And that opportunity to relocate for a more affordable lifestyle. Um, so, you know, as we spoke about, I've, we've recently purchased a house that we would never be able to afford in Sydney. And I've got no shame in saying that, in that, you know, coaches are coaches. And, and we, in Sydney, we felt like we were, we weren't getting anywhere. And so if we could relocate, um, the job was amazing. And then on top of that, the change of lifestyle and pace was, was second to that as well. Um, and then third and foremost was that we were able to see a dream come true in actually getting our own house as opposed to living in Sydney and, and seeing things evolve at a ridiculous level where you, you feel like a dream is, is certainly not a dream. It's just wishful thinking. So. <laughs> Well, congratulations. So what's next? What's next for the book, for your son, Axel, for your relationship, for Nathan and life in general? What, what comes from here on in? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just excited to, you know, the, like I, the, the book's still very much in its infancy. So there's going to be the thing that I'm really craving, which is it goes hand in hand with the book essentially is in order for us to get the, the as coaches, when I say us, the message out there to parents, then I need to be in front of parents and, and communicating this and, and being as transparent as I can so that they can continue to draw information from it. So for me, as soon as the COVID restrictions stop from different states and, and whatever, um, then it will definitely be about, there's already things in, in, in place of going to New Zealand and, and, you know, other states as well. And, and that's the first thing involved there. But the second thing as well is more um, when I say settling in, I don't think, Settling can come across or be portrayed as a, a negative word in that people perceive it to be being lazy, but it's not. From my perspective, it's very much about, okay, so now that you know where you're going to be for you know the next few years and whatnot, then, then you can really try and, I suppose, establish that roadmap and, and, and take, take your time to build that. So uh, for, for the, the Brisbane Grammar School program, that's very much where it is, where we've done term three now so we're about to go into term four and and i'm really excited because i feel like our team has evolved to a level now where we all are starting to gel and and understand everyone's differences and strengths along the way and and yeah i'm, I'm just really excited to build a, another program within the schooling setting um, but being in, in an environment that i'm more comfortable being in in order to try and get that message out there as well so that sounds really cool. Um, so do you get the school holidays as well as a strength and conditioning coach at the school? Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm going to say yes and no. Yeah. So uh, you do, you don't get what everybody else is not a teacher thinks that you get where you get 12 weeks of, of doing absolutely nothing. It's not like that at all. Um, but it, the, you know, the, the program and the gym and stuff like that is open throughout all the school holidays. So uh, I am fortunate that I do get probably more holidays than most when it comes to, um, you know, different work situations that people are in. Um, but at the same time, it's a, uh, it's a really rewarding space to be in. So yeah, loving it. It's a, it's a really cool job. I reckon it would, it's actually a job that I think would be a dream job to be a strength and conditioning coach in a high school. Like, I think everyone dreams goes, oh yeah, strength and conditioning coach with Parramatta Eels or Richmond Tigers or you know like these big clubs in NRL and AFL like national competitions, but they require so much time and effort and energy that you know 
I don't think they're as glamorous as a lot of people really think when you really go in there. Of course, they're really cool. But uh, I think to be a strength and conditioning coach in a high school where you're talking about with the developmental stuff, I think that's, that's like a, yeah, that's a really cool job. You're very lucky. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And yeah, I, I, yeah, for a variety of different reasons. And for me, the, the true definition, what I would define as a definition of success is that it allows you to wake up every day loving what you're doing, being the best version of yourself, impacting on others to be the best version of themselves without sacrificing other things, including relationships along the way. Um, and, and that's where I think that a lot of coaches get it jaded in that they get blinded by the lights and then it becomes a, an egotistical thing and a, and a competitive thing in that their, their identity is hanging on whatever team or things like that, that they're actually coaching. And, and for me, that's that I wouldn't define that as being successful because there's a lot of other things on the periphery that actually fall down as a result of that. And so for me, if I can be the best partner, best dad, being at birthdays, sporting fixtures and things like that, while also getting up, getting excited to do because it's not taking me away from being the best version that I can be, then to me, that's my definition of success. You're doing what I talk a lot about in terms of living a high-performance life and taking what you have learned and developed through high-performance sport and converting it into a pervasive way throughout your entire life and just really upgrading your life. It's, it's so obvious in hearing what you're saying that yeah, you've taken those concepts, the stuff that you get through elite sport, high-performance sport, and just spreading them through your entire life and upgrading your life and just living a high-performance life. You're doing very well for yourself. Thanks. For <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I'm just, I, no, no, I'm I, I know what you are saying because no, because I know what you're saying. And, and for me, it took me a long time and I think through personalities as well. Like I think we, the way that I phrase things is it's, it's only a problem if you're not aware of it. So there's certain characteristics in my personality that I'm fully aware of. And if I wasn't aware of it, then it would be a problem. But what, I'm, what I mean by this is that in order for me to be successful and perform optim, optimally, which is what you're talking about, then these, like it's a multifactorial approach to get my optimal performance as me as an individual in my day-to-day life. That, I think that's, that's where you're going with this. And for me, it took a long time to, to get to that because there's a lot of things that happen. And, and you know, we, we, we use professional sport. It's only one example in that you are so preoccupied by essentially your job in what you do that numerous other things on the outside and the periphery cannot take place. They just cannot. You can't be at your best mate's wedding you can't be at you know a funeral or whatever um and and you know birthdays you name it any fun any function like that you cannot do it in in when you when you choose to work in a particular space and 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 that's that to me that that carries weight that carries weight on your relationships it carries weight on if you're being the best father that you can be it carries weight on a variety of different things so for me that that's why like i said if you want to talk about performing optimally it's not about performing optimally in your career. It's about performing optimally in your day-to-day life. And, and that's where the different pieces of it come together. And, and for me, that's how I view it anyway. So how do you develop that? So if you don't get an opportunity to work in high-performance sport, how do you develop that, that living optimally, that high-performance life that we're talking about? Yeah, I... <laughs> uh, 
I'm certainly no guru in it. Trust me, I've made a lot of mistakes. But it, uh, for me, I, I think that we need to look outside of the boundaries in as far as uh, if you're passionate about something, sometimes the biggest mistake you can make is, is only look in that space. So if I'm an athletic development coach and I, and I love weightlifting, I love you know, conditioning, sprinting, whatever, and that is occupying my life, it doesn't actually make me a better person and it certainly doesn't make me a more well-rounded person. It actually makes me quite a boring person because that's all I talk about. Where if I go to podcasts, books, things like that, like there's so many things that I do outside of that, that and draw information from that, then that, that's where I go to to, to look at uh, just different, yeah, I suppose whether it be mindset through to um, certain beliefs about things, spirituality, then leadership and in management, then that's where I go down to. I don't I, I draw my information from. I don't necessarily just read books on weightlifting as an example. That, that's a, thank you so much for answering that like that because I was worried as I was saying it that I was throwing you under the bus because I was thinking I would know, not know how to answer this question. But the whole reading the books thing and listening to podcasts and just having that continual lifelong learning approach, which is what you're saying, is, is the best way to go about it. And anyone can achieve that. Yeah, and I think that it just requires an element of balance. Like you see super successful people achieve the ultimate height height in whatever it is, their career and things like that. But when you actually delve a little bit deeper into it and see what goes on outside of that, then it, it, it does make you wonder, are they successful? They've achieved massive accomplishments, but are they truly successful? And, and everyone's definition of success is different. But as I highlighted before, my definition of success is not that. So how do you go about that? Then you need to draw information from a variety of different sources and you need to uh, have friends and peers and things like that in different places that you can lean on as well. And, and it just allows you to, to draw a, from essentially information from a grader, if you want to call it a talent pool or whatnot, then by doing that, it allows you to become a lot more of a wholesome person as well. Yeah, I think you actually mentioned that right at the very start, something around clarity. And that's ultimately what you're saying is about being clear on what it is you want and uh, specifically with what your definition of success is. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. So it might be a little bit too soon, but are there any plans for a second book? Is there a follow-up on the cards for <laughs> to the sporting parent? Uh, at the moment, there's not. Uh, but don't worry, I have actually had some thoughts into my mind and thinking, oh, what about this? And um, but no, it's 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 definitely not on the cards anytime soon. Uh, I've got no doubt that you'll write one before I will. <laughs> Nathan, um, this hour has passed so quick, and I reckon we could talk for another couple of hours easily, or certainly I could. Um, I just want to thank you for your time on the Mind Your Body Show today and acknowledge you for everything that you do and you've done in sport and helping people uh, right from the highest levels through to the grassroots and congratulate you on writing your very first book, which I'm sure is one of possibly many. But uh, yeah, so acknowledge you and thank you for being on the Mind Your Body Show. Thanks very much, Jacob. I really appreciate the offer and the opportunity to come on and, and I really appreciate those who have taken the time to, to listen to it as well. Yeah, it means a lot. Of course, it's not time to go right yet because anyone who does listen to the show on a regular basis knows that we've got 10 in 10 coming up, which is Oof. 10 quick questions in 10 seconds. So as you've been talking, I've been writing furiously some little like <laughs> dot points. 
Um, before I get into it, just to give you a chance to grab your breath, where can people find you online? Yeah, I think the best place to just jump straight over to nathanparnum.com and all my links through to social media, through to the Sporting Parent book, uh, they're all there. So that's probably the best insights that you'll get into me and where you can reach out from. Awesome. Of course, we'll link all that up in the show notes. So time for 10 and 10. Question, oh, no, not question, number one, point one, the first thing that comes to mind. You ready to go? I am. Let's go. All right. Number one, consistency. Is the key to success. I like that. That's very good. Number two, being one of four. Balanced. Number three, combat sports. Not what everyone thinks. What is it then? <laughs> uh, it's, people see the, the violence and the brutality, but for me, there's a lot of harmony and talent and hard work that goes into it. So, yeah. Number five, and I hope I don't stuff up this word again, Muay Thai. Muay Thai, yeah. Muay Thai. <laughs> oh, what, what it is. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. No, the first thing that comes to mind when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. Experience. Private schools versus public schools. Non-existent. No difference. That, that, well, no, no. What I mean by that is uh, you'll often hear that debate of which is better. And I, I can honestly say I went to a private school. Would I send my kids to a private school? Debatable. Uh, next one. Taking the leap to follow your dreams. Absolutely. And never look back. Once you've made that decision, don't look back. You've made it. It's done. Awesome. Uh, number seven, coaching. Life. Number eight, social media. Has a place and don't, don't, don't live your life by it. Number nine, silence. Uh, is what I strive for daily. And number 10 is a question which I ask everybody and it's a little insight into my mind and the way it works, it's a little bit crazy. So if you could go forward in time or back in time, now this is a time machine, you can come back to now. Would you go forward or back in time? And if you were going to go to one or the other, where would you go to, like which point in time and why? I'd go forward because I never go back and I never, and I never look back for that matter outside of learning experiences and where I would go, I'd go forward to be old enough that I've seen my son and possibly any future kids uh, experience what they need to experience in life before I move on. Just a little addition to that. Would you stay at that point or would you come back to now knowing what um, you've seen? Uh, yeah, well, I wouldn't come back. Yeah, if, if I'm honest, yeah, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go to the future and then come back and where it is, knowing that is what what's coming in the future. So, yeah, awesome, Nathan. Thank you very much for your time on the Mind Your Body Show. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. It's been a really cool chat.